men who receive their uh, treatment for prostate cancer are told on their first visit, this is going to impact your sexual function. And women aren't told that always. And then the symptoms come up and they Google it like everybody does. And when you Google like sexual problems or sexual dysfunction, it's like all Google images, it's all about erectile dysfunction. And that's, and that's, I think where we can do a lot better. Welcome to the FemPower Health Podcast, helping you become the CEO of your health. I'm Georgie Kovacs, your host. It's Cancer Awareness Month, and one of the topics many either don't know about or are scared to talk about or don't even know how to talk about it is your sexual health while undergoing cancer treatments. And we are here to get real and to provide the support that you deserve and need. Enter Dr. Kristen Rojas. She is a Society of Surgical Oncology Fellowship trained breast surgical oncologist and gynecologic surgeon with a passion for comprehensive wellness in women's cancer care. And she definitely has a passion for helping you with your sexual health. This episode completely blew me away. I did research in advance and definitely did not find the nuances of the helpful information that she discusses. And so I'm just going to stop with any more introductions and let you listen to the amazing information she has to share. And I promise you will get so much out of this and feel a lot more empowered about getting back your sexual health or preparing for some of the things you may be dealing with before, during, and after your cancer treatments. To be honest with you, I'd never really considered how sexual health changes when you have cancer. I mean, my mom had cancer. She passed away from it. I mean, I guess we didn't really talk about our sex lives, but, <laughs> but I mean, it's just something that I was never really aware of. And so I really appreciate that um, being educated today around what patients really need to be considering and expecting. So before we dive into the topic, why don't you talk to us about your background and, and specialty and kind of how this has become a passionate uh, topic for you. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I'm thrilled to be here with you for this podcast. I think it's such an important topic, but uh, my name is Kristen Rojas. I'm a breast cancer surgeon, but I actually started my career as a gynecologist. So I have, I wear kind of two hats. I'm a board certified gynecologist and a fellowship trained breast surgeon. So I always knew I wanted to have a career in women's health. And, and I did my residency at Brown University and um, OBGYN. And they had a unique program there where the GYN residents actually were involved in the care of breast cancer patients as opposed to general surgery residents. So I did a fellowship in breast surgical oncology or breast cancer surgery, and then was in New York for several years as faculty at a big hospital in Brooklyn. And I uh, you know, because I started out as a gynecologist, I don't know if I was asking the question or if patients knew that about me and they were more likely to bring these topics up, but I started to realize how incredibly common this was. And just like you, it was something that I hadn't really thought about, but when you ask the question and looking at the literature, more than 80% of women, specifically breast cancer patients, report sexual side effects from treatment. And so I started this program called MUSIC, stands for Menopause, Urogenital Sexual Health and Intimacy Clinic. Um, you know, and I made it a, a benign sounding acronym because my patients are of all ages and not everyone wants to be referred to a sexual health clinic. Um, and so the MUSIC program is for women with a history of any type of cancer, 
who are experiencing sexual dysfunction. Through this, through this process, I've learned a lot about how other cancer treatments at other disease sites, such as leukemia, lymphoma, you know, other GYN cancers, sarcoma, all of those treatments can impact sexual function. Young women, postmenopausal women, and it's um, it's an under discussed topic. And so my goal is to make it normal conversation. So thank you so much for having me so we can do that. You know, if someone is about to undergo cancer treatment, like what, what could they expect around sexual health? And I ask this because one of the things that's really been fascinating to me as I've interviewed so many guests on this episode, I think it's like over 60 experts now, maybe over 70 is there's so many nuances here, right? Like when you were talking about the phases of life, like there's phases of life too that impact our sexual health. And so, you know, here, I think it's very obvious you're getting cancer treatment. There's probably a direct impact, um, but you were definitely speaking specifically to the side effects of the medications. And so I, I guess, you know, I'd love to know what is impacted here? Like what should women expect and, and what might be surprising to, you, to us to hear about this? Outside of the psychosocial impact of a cancer diagnosis, which is a huge hit to a woman and her caregivers or her partner, her family, you know, there actually are these biological consequences of cancer treatment that really almost mirror the effects of a normal menopause. And as a society, I think we don't do a great job preparing women without cancer for menopause. It's not something we all talk about until it's your problem, you know, and then you quietly ask your friend if they're experiencing the same symptoms. Well, we're, we're putting norm, younger women into menopause and then women who've already gone through menopause worsening their symptoms. And the way that works is it's not just women with a history of breast cancer, which now that we're raising awareness about this seems to be what everyone kind of focuses on, but it's women with a history of any type of cancer who receive chemotherapy. Chemotherapy basically shuts your ovaries down. So then your ovaries are what makes estrogen and your body went before menopause is used to having normal fluctuations in estrogen. And that's what causes, you know, monthly cycles. Well, when you drop those levels of estrogen really low, it affects not only your brain, but your heart, your bones, and then your, the vulva and the vagina. And so the symptoms you most immediately experience are hot flashes because it's literally like a drug withdrawal from estrogen, which does a lot of good things in your body. But then secondary effects that you usually feel shortly after are vaginal dryness, which usually manifests as painful sex. So Oftentimes with this big psychological hit of a diagnosis, women are kind of putting their intimate lives on the back burner while they focus on getting through treatment and getting through surgery, getting through radiation. They may go back to try to have sex after all that acute, all those acute issues are resolved and they'll realize, oh my gosh, like the biggest symptom patients report when they see me in the program is all of a sudden I went back to having sex and it felt like knives and it was so scary. No one told me that was going to happen. And it's really, and patients can have bleeding after sex, which is very traumatizing. They don't feel like themselves. Their desire is much lower. And, um, and all of these things can impact not only it, you can have sexual dysfunction without even being partnered. And obviously it, it doesn't, um, isn't specific to a sexual orientation or, or gender, but you know, my program does focus on, on women. So it can affect women biologically as well as the psychosocial impact. You know, there's also radiation, which comes into play. A lot of women who have GYN malignancies get 
pelvic radiation, and that basically shuts down their ovaries um, and makes uh, can make the vagina shorter or narrower, making sex penetrative intercourse impossible. And so there's some interventions that we have during treatment to help prevent those sequelae, but oftentimes we're just trying to throw so much information at patients and get them through this multi-step process that is cancer treatment that we don't always do a great job addressing those issues and, and mitigate and giving them mitigation strategies. So that's kind of why I want like to bring it up because it's like, as you said, you, you know, you have a healthcare background and you talk to all these experts, but even you hadn't really thought about it that much. And it's true. Even from the world of gynecology, a lot of GYNs don't think about it that much. And so that's my goal is to raise awareness about the problem because it's actually extremely common. Wow. So tell us like in, in an ideal world, or maybe you can compare like what typically happens, right? And what an ideal world should look like. Because like, for example, I've done a lot um, of interviews around the pelvic floor. And what was really interesting is a tip that one of the experts gave, which is while you're pregnant, go see a pelvic floor physical therapist before you deliver, because we can look at your body and your muscles and your pelvic floor and see what are the best positions for you to deliver your baby, to create the le least amount of injuries to your body. And it's one visit. What, so what would be the equivalent of that, of like what actually happened? Because I'm honestly envisioning cancer diagnosis, book your appointment, go get your chemo or radiation. Like that's what I envision the world is and you're nodding. So I'm assuming yes. Yeah, I think it's really tough because, you know, as a breast surgeon, I'm often the first patient that, I mean, the first person that the patient sees when they're newly diagnosed with breast cancer. So I've got to get through what this diagnosis is, what your prognosis is, and what the steps are of your treatment, get you on board with everything uh, in less than an hour, you know, and start the process. And so that is a lot. And some places get even less time than I do. You know, I'm fortunate to be at a big center where we have a big team. So I really feel like I get to spend almost an hour with every new patient, but I know that's not the case in a lot of places because of the nature of our healthcare system. So I think that um, one way is to have a team where there's someone else who's kind of in charge of taking over this, that reaches out to the patient after um, this in first information has been digested and kind of talks about all the other aspects of support through treatment, you know, but it's interesting because men, there's been studies looking at this men who receive their uh, treatment for prostate cancer are told on their first visit, this is going to impact your sexual function. And women aren't told that always. And then the symptoms come up and they Google it like everybody does. And when you Google like sexual problems or sexual dysfunction, it's like all Google images, it's all about erectile dysfunction. And that's, and that's, I think where we can do a lot better. And so I think, you know, it's a lot to put on the primary provider who sees them first and tries to get them through the cancer treatment part. But I think it's really great if offices can have someone who kind of follows up with the patient after, if it's not mentioned at the first visit, because oftentimes it's very overwhelming and it's hard for patients to really digest everything we're giving them at that first visit. Can I ask you a question that um, it, it triggered when you said the first visit after someone is diagnosed is with me and you're a breast surgeon. So can I just clarify a nuance? Because since I have you, 
like a lot of people will say, well, surgeons, we know what they want to do. They're trained to cut people open. Um, so can you just for someone, cause I think this is, you know, even broader, it's like what, yes, we want to get into sexual health, but I kind of almost want to get into like, how do you ideally manage the fact that your body is going to, so it's not just, let's make sure the cancer doesn't get worse and we can, you know, get rid of it and keep you alive and keep you healthy. And we're going to specifically dive into sexual health. But I do think there's a couple nuances. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask, oh. you know, I would assume it's an OBGYN they're visiting, they get their you know, annual exam, and then there's a potential, you know, concern or diagnosis. Is it literally typically the next step is a surgeon? And then is the surgeon like the title is okay in there. I also do radiation and it's not just, I go straight to surgery. So how does all that work with the nuances of the specialists? No, I love that you've asked this because it's really important. So Usually what happens is a patient will be getting an annual mammogram that's ordered or annual breast imaging, or they'll feel something that they usually bring to like their primary care provider or their GYN. They'll start the process for the workup to get the diagnosis, which usually leads to an image guided biopsy. Once they get that biopsy and they get the results, then patients are referred to one of the members of what we call a multidisciplinary team that takes care of breast cancer. So like 20, 30 years ago, you would see a lot more surgeons and oncologists kind of as siloed and standalone. That model still exists in a lot of places and it's a fine model, but now we move more towards disease site specific teams. So a team for breast cancer, a team for pancreatic cancer, a team for colorectal cancer in a lot of bigger cities. It's not always the case in, in rural areas and that's, and that's okay. Um, but for a lot of the times patients are referred to like a cancer center or they'll be referred to a surgeon who's also a breast surgeon who specializes in breast cancer. Even though like I love to operate and that's my job, uh, a big, you know, now with all of these targeted therapies, it's doing a patient a disservice for me to just take them to the OR immediately and not make sure that they don't need something else first. Because a lot of times patients, especially younger patients with more advanced disease really benefit from targeted treatment before we go to the operating room. And so that's why working as a team and, and, you know, in a lot of big centers, um, every new patient or almost every new patient gets discussed as a team to figure out not only the right treatments for them, but the right order of treatments. And so I think of the breast surgeon as kind of like the quarterback of the team that kind of decides what's the next step. Either we go to the OR or no, I need you to see my colleague first, but I'll keep tabs on you through this process. And then you'll come back to me after the first phase. And so sometimes patients are referred to a breast surgeon or sometimes are referred to the medical oncologist. And that's why it's important that we're always communicating um, so to answer your question, yes, my job is as, as a surgeon to remove the cancer, but I think today it's a lot more nuanced than that because we are so, every woman's cancer is so different and it's the treatment of breast cancer is evolving so quickly. In the smaller cities where we don't have the opportunity for teams, I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to that because that's something I've become really interested in. And, um, I'll, you know, I think season three of this podcast is really going to be diving into what can everyone do? Because I tell you, I've been getting frustrated. I feel like all these solutions are for people that have really, really good health insurance and a ton of spare cash. I cannot ignore it. And so even if, you know, I feel like everyone has even like one little tip for people who may not live, you know, in one of the metropolitan areas of the United States. So how does it work there and, and anything someone should consider? Because I think, you know, it's not like we all plan and are experts in cancer once we get it. You know, what are some quick things that 
people should be aware of in their treatment plan? So this is a great question. And my father is actually a general surgeon in rural Texas. And he, there uh, you go. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. He, uh, he was in private practice for a long time treating women with breast cancer. So, and so I've definitely been able to see how that works as well. And in that setting, I think patients are often referred to the breast surgeon first. And I think important questions to ask your breast surgeon are, okay, who else am I going to be referred to? Because really nowhere is breast surgery the only part of your treatment now. It's just a matter of, you know, in a rural area, you may be charged with coordinating your own care kind of and asking, you know, usually surgeons that are in a private practice or in the community have uh, people that they reach out to and refer you to. So I think a good question to ask is who else is going to be involved in my care? Who do you recommend? And at what step in the process is surgery? Because sometimes it's first and sometimes it's second. The bigger centers tend to have like these patient care teams where, it's the, like you mentioned earlier, they're like calling and checking in. And I know this is where like, they're the folks kind of assigned around things like fertility preservation. And hopefully, you know, more and more people will be assigned the sexual health proactive discussions and things like that. Um, So I think it's important for people to be aware there are these roles that exist, but they may not exist everywhere. So it's really up to us as patients to be aware and be able to ask the question, which is so hard because it's like, how do you keep track of all the things you're supposed to be asking? Because you never know what kind of health issue you may come up with. Well, that's actually why I have a social media account that's breast cancer focused. And then I also have one that's related to the sexual health after cancer program is I'm big on patient education for patients everywhere. So I'd really encourage patients to find advocacy groups. There's a lot of Um, depending on your type of cancer, there's a lot of uh, advocacy groups out there that have whole websites dedicated to patient education and what to ask your doctor when you go see them. There are people out there that are really trying to disseminate this information and making it much more accessible than it was even a couple of years ago. So um, while it is nice to have someone in your office who's kind of charged with that, sometimes that is kind of on the patient in certain situations. But I tell patients, you know, you end up having a PhD, a personal history of the disease and their patients come in from all walks of life and they're so well-informed. They've looked up everything. They know about me and where I trained. Um, Everyone can look that up. And so I think that, you know, now information is a lot more accessible, but I'd really encourage patients to look up some of the big advocacy groups for breast cancer. And and those include uh, Rethink Breast Cancer, which is a group targeted towards younger women with breast cancer. Um, There's the Breasties, there's um, Boarding for Breast Cancer. There's all these groups that really focus on patient education and helping women through this process. Oh, and then when women are looking for options for reconstruction, um, one of my, uh, someone I met who I really like and think is a huge advocate, her name is Terry and she has a um, a site called Deep Sea Foundation or Deep Sea Journey, D-I-E-P-C Journey, which is a type of reconstruction flap that offers a lot of age education. So, oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Cause I do have show notes and all the stuff we discuss here, I'll have links to, so people can refer Perfect. to it. So thanks for sharing that. And I'll also put your Perfect. Instagram accounts on there too, because, you know, and, and I like that you brought up advocacy groups because, you know, when I look for people to interview, sometimes people email me questions about topics or a friend will call and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to do an episode on this. And <laughs> if I don't already know someone, I either 
go to a previous expert I know and say, who do you know? Like my orgasm episode was based on a previous sexual health person. I'm like, I need to know who to talk to about orgasms. My friend asked me a question. I had zero answers for her. And that's how that <laughs> one came to life. But if I don't have that, then I truly go to the advocacy groups and I research which ones have scientific evidence, which ones have doctors and patients on board. Because if it's one, if it's just doctors or just patients, I feel like it's not as balanced. So I really look for that kind of criteria. So now let's talk about more around how you're handling the sexual health part of it and you know what your program is designed to do and kind of how it works. Because I think from that, we can learn a lot and I can ask you some more questions based on what you share. Sure. Well, the first uh, visit is, you know, I take a history looking at, you know, what type of cancer the patient has and what are their most bothersome symptoms, what's really impacting their life. And I think the exam, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have this GYN background so that I can do a GYN exam and, and kind of get a, a lot more details about why they're experiencing pain or uh, what may be the clue, like what clues we could figure out to, to fix their problem. But even in places that don't have someone like me, you can still start to address these symptoms even without a very detailed pelvic exam. I kind of, my program is, I tell patients to keep their regular gynecologist and think of this as like a super sub-specialized visit. And I coordin often coordinate with their gynecologists and see them a couple of times and then can send them back. Um, but the most common symptoms in the program are painful sex, which is the first manifestation of vaginal dryness that patients usually feel, and then low desire. Those are like the biggest, biggest concerns. You know, for vaginal dryness, it's actually not that complicated. You know, I really have like three or four steps, and a lot of the program is, is uh, education. You know, when the estrogen goes really low, and the, the tissues of the vulva and the vagina, the vulva being the outside and the vagina being the muscular tube of the inside, they become very delicate and less stretchy, a little bit thinner, and they're much more likely to be irritated by long name chemicals, artificial fragrances, and things that we don't even think about, like uh, fragrances and the detergent that we wash our underwear with or sitting in bubble bath for a long time. All of those things can start this cycle of inflammation that just makes sex painful or dryness worse, or this feeling of burning and irritation all the time. So the first step is to eliminate irritants. Be really cautious about what touches the area um, and look reading labels, avoiding things with preservatives, any artificial fragrances. And then the second thing is start a moisturization regimen. So just like we use under eye cream and put on a moisturizer every night, start thinking about moisturizing the vulva and the vagina at least three times a week. And there's, whereas in the past, we there was like one brand name Moisturizer, we would tell everyone to get, which is like over the counter at the grocery store, but we actually have way better products now that have really high tech formulations that don't even necessarily have hormones. Um, because a lot of women, you know, breast cancer patients with a history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, so hormone sensitive breast cancer, we typically try to avoid hormone, uh, estrogen products, although sometimes we do need to use them. But a lot of other women with other cancer types, like uh, cervical, colorectal, lung, sarcoma can all use hormone uh, medications. And so non-hormonal moisturizers, uh, the ones I tell patients to look for have hyaluronic acid. So the same molecule that's in like eye cream that pulls moisture from the environment, holds it on the skin. There's vaginal moisturizers with hyaluronic acid in the form of suppositories or gels. And starting that like three times a week can make a huge difference. So I separate moisturizers, think of moisturizers for maintenance, and then lubricants for sexual activity, because oftentimes patients don't know how to use 
which one. Like they'll maybe using the lubricant for a moisturizer and just, they work in different ways. So for lubricants, you wanna work, find one that doesn't have any gimmicks. So no like warming sensations for, for my patients with a history of cancer where those tissues are just really sensitive, you know, no flavors, um, anything like that, really basic. And I, focus, I encourage them to try a silicone-based lubricant that doesn't have fragrances or preservatives. There's a couple of brands um, that I like. Some brands that um, for moisturizers that I recommend are the bona fide suppositories called Reverie. Good Clean Love makes a good hyaluronic acid moisturizer called uh, BioNourish. And then there's Hyalogyne. It's also a hyaluronic acid moisturizer. For lubricants, I tell patients about UberLube. It's a silicone-based lubricant that has no preservatives and is super slippery and really minimally uh, doesn't irritate anyone. Whereas a lot of like over-the-counter grocery store lubricants can really irritate patients because they have a lot of chemicals in them. So I empower patients to be the ones that pick the lubricant because a lot of times that's put on the partner and the partner just shows up with, you know, whatever is at the grocery store. Right. And so, yeah. And then lastly is, um, you know, that's talking about dryness and improving the stretchiness of the vagina, decreasing infections, irritation. But lastly is um, uh, pelvic, the pelvic floor. And I'm glad you really brought that up because Oftentimes I recommend patients see a pelvic health physical therapist. They're amazing. They are so awesome. And a lot of them have really good, there's a lot of good social media accounts from pelvic health physical therapists. And so I encourage everyone to find one if you don't have one in your area, but they really help patients focus on relaxing the pelvic floor muscles because, you know, you patients, by the time they get to me, they've gotten all kinds of crazy advice. Like one of them being like, oh, you just need to do more Kegels. Well, Kegels actually aren't what these patients need because the pelvis is like a basket of these muscles woven together. When one starts, when you start to feel pain with sex, you start ha having spasms in these muscles unconsciously, and it just starts this negative feedback loop. What we need to train these patients to do is be able to relax those muscles. But it's hard if sex has been painful for a while, they have this anticipatory anxiety where they're nervous and tense, and it's hard to really get them to relax those muscles. So sometimes having a coach like a pelvic health physical therapist is really helpful. Some patients are really um, more comfortable with taking on like the or better are better at taking these cues and, and don't uh, if I can't get them into a pelvic health PT because of insurance, I can kind of coach them through how to do this. Um, and I can give them a dilator, which is um, helpful for training them to relax the muscles, use the dilator in a non-threatening situation, help stretch out the tissues of the vagina to make sex less painful. Um, and then one last thing I'd like to mention is a device called the O-Nut. It was actually invented by a woman, I believe this is the story, who had really bad endometriosis. And so those patients often have times have pain with deep penetration with sexual um, activity. And so it's literally like a bumper. So there are these stackable silicone rings that you place on the penis and they act like penis or whatever device for penetration. They act like a bumper to limit the depth of penetration. So patients who have pain deep in their pelvis during sex um, actually have, my patients have told me that the ONUT is really helpful. So the website for that is ohnut.co and it's really, and they have a fabulous website with pelvic health physical therapists on there too. You mentioned the the hormone changes too, and I know like in um, when you're in perimenopause and menopause, estrogen patches are something that people can use. And I know we've talked a lot about breast cancer specifically, but you work with those with a lot of different cancers. 
So when the estrogen drops, clearly from the sexual health perspective, you've talked about the moisturizer and the lubricant, but what about the other impacts of the hormone changes? Because, you know, your the sexual health, which a lot of times is the testosterone levels, like what do we do about the, the hormone part of this? Where I'm at a large cancer center now, I see a lot of young women who've undergone very intense chemotherapy for leukemia, lymphoma, and then have had bone marrow transplants, which we call stem cell transplants. Um, and they have menopause in their twenties and thirties and having no estrogen from that early almost certainly leads to osteoporosis and potentially an increased risk of having a heart attack, maybe even dementia. And so these, it's not just even sexual function. It's like your entire body is impacted. And so uh, the first sign of that is hot flashes. Cause that's like your body's barometer for where you're at with regards to estrogen. So if patients, um, so I am a strong advocate for giving them those systemic hormones back. So the easiest way to do that is an estrogen patch an estradiol patch. Um, there are people out there who are really big advocates for bioidentical hormones, but you know, estradiol as a patch, estradiol is the same molecule as in it is bioidentical. It's just, we know are more, for me, the FDA approved products are, I know I feel more comfortable knowing the dose how everybody processes them, what the blood levels are in patients afterwards. For me, it's a little bit more specific. Um, and there, but, and I think bioidentical, like as a concept became really popular because for a long time we were giving women Premarin, which was conjugated equine estrogens, which is all these estrogens that aren't even natural to us. Not only that, the companies were, I'm from South Texas and I used to like, I'm a horse person. And those companies are, there's all these stories about horse abuse, like getting the pregnant horse urine. And, and so our bodies don't really respond very well, understandably to another species hormones. And so right. I think that that's kind of what was the impetus for this, this idea of bioidentical hormones, but you know, anything that's estradiol is a bioidentical hormone, just making it from soy and making it in a lab. Like you can't, all the chemicals you give a soybean to make it in estradiol. It's like, it's, it's not that natural. So to me, it doesn't really matter, but so I always give patients the estradiol patch and kind of change the dose based on how frequent their hot flashes are. It's crazy. They start to feel so much better. They're like, oh my gosh, I feel like myself again. Um, if women still have their uterus though, we do need to give them some progesterone back, um, to help decrease because estrogen by itself, if you have your uterus can increase the risk of abnormal cells growing in the uterus. So the progesterone kind of is like the brakes on that. And so there's different ways we can do that. Sometimes it's by a pill, sometimes it's through a progesterone IUD. That's kind of where the provider comes in and play to kind of make that more specific recommendation. But bottom line is definitely recommend as getting estrogen back in some form or fashion for those young patients who don't have an estrogen sensitive cancer. If they still have their uterus, they need uh, progesterone. And if they don't, they don't need progesterone. Estrogen hormone replacement therapy gets a bad rap because of a big study that came out called the Women's Health Initiative um, that was published in 2002 and had two groups looking at women who got estrogen alone and women who got estrogen with progesterone. And the study wasn't even designed to look at breast cancer risk. It was designed to look at cardiac morbidity or the rates of heart attacks with hormone replacement therapy. There are all these issues with the design of the study. But when they first came out, they said that women had an increased risk of breast cancer with hormone replacement therapy. If you do like a deep dive on the data, the estrogen alone patients did not have an increased risk. The progesterone alone patients, I mean, progesterone with estrogen, so like the combined hormone had a tiny bump in their risk. 
So it might be due to the progesterone and not the estrogen, but nevertheless, everyone associates estrogen with this increased breast cancer risk. So even the long-term data of that WHI trial showed that estrogen alone may actually decrease the risk of breast cancer. But of course, the media didn't pick up that story the same way as it did in the early 2000s when it was like, we're trying to kill women with hormones, you know? Um, So it's complicated. Yeah, the media definitely sometimes shapes the way we view things, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. So can we clarify this nuance with an estrogen-sensitive cancer and when you can give estrogen? Because in one, you mentioned that giving estrogen can decrease the rate of cancer, but we know if you're, you have an estrogen sensitive cancer, there's an impact on estrogen. And if you can't get an estrogen patch in that case, then what happens? It's very confusing. Um, (laughs) If you don't have a history of uh, estrogen sensitive breast cancer, which really the only ones are breast, uh, sorry, estrogen sensitive cancer. So it's breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive or endometrial cancer, which is the lining of the uterus. So those are the big ones that respond to estrogen. Um, And so once you have that type of cancer, we have to be really careful about what formulation, what we give you, because some things have estrogen properties and can act as like a stimulant to grow. But there's a big difference between systemic hormones, which is like by a pill by mouth or a patch or vaginal estrogen. Vaginal estrogen works locally. Um, so for even with a woman with a history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, I do often prescribe low dose vaginal estrogen, especially if their symptoms of dryness are really severe. And there's no evidence showing that there's increased risk of recurrence for those patients, but it's just a long conversation. Um, right. And so, and so, but actually it turns out in women without cancer, estrogen may actually be protective. Um, And so it's probably a lot more complicated than we even realize. It has to do with estrogen turning on and off different types of genes and how those genes are um, regulate cell division um, for cancer cells versus normal cells. And so uh, we're probably just only understanding the tip of the iceberg for that. But, you know, for women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, oftentimes we're blocking estrogen with different medications. And it's important to to take those because they're really critical for decreasing the risk of recurrence. Um, And so in that case, we typically don't often give estrogen back by any form because we're we're trying to block the estrogen. So it's really complicated. And that's oftentimes why, you know, oncologists um, that I work with, you know, they have a lot to counsel patients on and it's a very complicated topic. And um, so that's why I like collaborating with them. So I can be like, actually, I looked this up and I think this is actually going to be okay. And, you know, we're always learning. You have this program and it, it does seem to be something where you have to collaborate with people and you've shared so much of what's in your brain. Is there like a, like a a packet or something someone could get, or like, how could they work with you if they're not in your location? Yeah. So a lot of what I do is educating other providers in other places. Like this is how you treat this so that, you know, everyone gets this information for those patients seeking this information. You know, I actually, because unfortunately we do have a little bit of a waiting list for this program because my main gig is as a breast surgeon. And so Uh, I, I really only am able to do this program on Tuesdays. And so, um, and the demand is huge, you know, when we offer it, patients come and say that they have these problems because we're asking the questions. So I actually made a a free workshop, uh, that's posted on the YouTube of my cancer center. It's, um, the Sylvester comprehensive cancer center, YouTube page. 
if you scroll to the bottom, there's a sex after cancer workshop and we have it in both English and Spanish. It's free, it's two hours. I talk um, a little bit about some of the things I talked about today. Uh, pelvic health physical therapist talks about you know, exercises before sex to, and you know all kinds of things. We have a, sex, uh, a social worker who's a doctor in sexology and so just so much information. And so I can do consults you know, now with telemedicine being what it is post COVID, just complicated with insurance sometimes. Right. So I do have some patients that uh, from other states and I do a lot of complicated consults say on patients who have a BRCA mutation. So one thing we didn't talk about was patients who have a BRCA mutation, which is what BRCA, which increases the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. We recommend those patients have their ovaries removed very early, like between 35 and 45. And if they don't have a history of breast cancer, we need to be giving them back estrogen. But a lot of people are afraid to do that because they have an increased risk of breast cancer. And so there's a lot of misinformation out there about how to manage those patients. So I also end up recommending hormones and treating patients who are just at really high risk of breast cancer. And so I end up doing a lot of like complicated consults for those patients as well, because there's a huge unmet need for managing those patients. Like we're preventing terrible cancers, but then are we setting them up for osteoporosis, heart attacks, and dementia by not addressing all these other issues? Now, what about the part where the sexual desire, you know, I'm sure there's a psychological component, but then there's also the hormonal component. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what people can take away from, from that aspect as well. Yeah. So in patients who don't have the estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and endometrial cancer, giving back those hormones really helps with desire. Like it's just making them feel normal again, but it's a little more, uh, and, and, you know, desire really is an androgen led process. So like testosterone is an androgen, uh, DHEA is an androgen, which is like a precursor to testosterone. So there is, um, you know, I'm actually about to open a trial looking at vaginal testosterone for patients with a history, of, even with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, because probably doesn't impact the amount of estrogen in their bodies. And it, and it can be really helpful for those vulvovaginal symptoms, but also probably helps with desire as well. Um, so there's, that's the hormone side of it. Yep. Um, you know, uh, systemic testosterone for women without a history of cancer is not at this time FDA approved, but there's a lot of off-label ways to prescribe it. And so I think it's, and, and there's like different um, bioidentical things that are out there. And so I think it's kind of something we're still studying long-term for safety, especially in high-risk patients. The other big libido uh, conservative um, measures are exercise. Exercise increases your natural testosterone and patients are exhausted after cancer treatment. So it's really, um, you know, I think also an extra motivator to be like, okay, not only are we going to get you in shape and you're going to feel good, but also it helps with desire. And so, um, you know, high intensity exercise, really getting the heart, uh, no screens in bed. So I talked to patients about sleep hygiene. You know, if you're watching TV and on Instagram in bed, like you're not thinking about sex ever, sex should really just be for sleep. I mean, sorry, bed should be for sleeping and sex only little behavioral things that, um, that I talked to them about, but then the two pharmaceutical options available to patients, women that nobody knows about. And there's like six forms of Viagra out there on the market and everyone knows about them, but there's two options. Neither one is hormonal. One is called phlebanserin, which is a once a day pill. Uh, the brand name is Addy, A-D-D-Y-I, and they have a really interesting website, um, but it's a once a day pill and it works in the brain. It's a serotonin modulator. 
the only, you know, relative contraindication is patients who, you know, I tell them if they have more than two drinks in one day, do not take their pill that day just to skip the pill because combining the two can cause low blood pressure and some other side effects. I would say probably anecdotally about half of my patients respond to this medication um, about two months in, it takes a little while, um, but it is definitely an option. It's non-hormonal and, and, and works for uh, some of my patients that with desire, because desire oftentimes, while it is impacted by pain, you know, when I start to fix the pain, sometimes desire comes back. Um, you know, it's also impacted by hormones, but it's also, it's complicated, like you said. Um, and then the second option, which I actually have not prescribed in my practice yet, is called bremelanotide or Vilesi, uh, V-Y-L-E-E-S-I. It came out, I believe, in 2019, and it's actually an injection that you give yourself before sex. So, so it's like very interesting, but my cancer patients are subjected to a lot of injections and they are not enthusiastic about this. So they also have a really interesting website to check out, but um, I have not personally prescribed this yet. I'm glad there's two options and I try to talk about them as much as possible because the more we talk about this, the more I think industry is going to respond and give women more options. I always like to say, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to make sure you covered? I just <laughs> want to, as like a parting message I didn't really touch on. You know, if you're a patient and you're experiencing these issues, even if you don't have cancer and you're experiencing these issues, bring them up to your doctor. And I just, it's, it's nerve wracking and you may not get the response you want. Like you may tell your oncologist and they get really flustered and uh, not really have an answer for you. But if five patients that day in the clinic, ask them the same question, you know, we want to help. They're going to go home. They're going to call their friends. They're going to look it up online. They're going to come up with the resources so that the next time you ask, they're going to have something for you. And so the big problem with this um, is that we pay, if you ask a lot of doctors, like, like, oh, my patients never asked me about that. So it must not be a problem. And so I just want to empower everyone to speak up, talk about it like it's normal, ask your doctor more than one time. <laughs> and eventually pe more people will come up with the resources to help. Um, and so I just, you know, don't be embarrassed. You know, you have nothing to lose. Um, especially my cancer patients cancer patients have just already gone through so much. Like just, um, I want to just empower everyone to speak up, um, to every doctor that they have. Um, cause you know, one time I had a heart, a patient who had a history of cancer, but also had a history of heart failure. There's a medication we give heart failure patients that blocks testosterone. And I, she was having low desire. And I said, well, maybe we can switch you from this medication to another type. So I talked to our cardiologist and he was like, that's not a real problem. No one's ever told me that before. And I was like, well, probably more people are experiencing it than you realize, but bring it up, bring it up multiple times and bring it up to all your doctors and just talk about it normally. And, and people will come up with solutions for you. So much of what I say is you've got to talk to your doctor. You have to ask the right questions. You have to be prepared. And I always love to get the different perspectives so that people realize doctors are not robots. They are human beings. And like, we all have a role to play in this very frustrating healthcare system. And, <sighs> you know, so thank you for that perspective. Cause it's really, really important. If you could wave your magic wand, what would you love to see change in our healthcare system that would help you do your job better? Access. I think there are you know, I work at a very nice cancer center, but you need insurance to see me. And I think that there are a lot of patients who are not insured. And as much as we try to make the public health options 
equal to private options, they're not. There's delays. Um, even in if you do have insurance, there are delays in getting the care that you need, depending on how proactive you are about insisting on consults and appropriate referrals. And so I think a huge problem is access. And so I don't want to get political on your podcast, but I think that everyone needs to have access to affordable health care. And that would we would prevent chronic illnesses. We would educate patients about how to take better care of themselves. And um, we wouldn't have so much superfluous spending in the healthcare system if we took the control from reimbursement and gave it to the patients. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you and thank you so much for, for being honest about it. So let's end on a fun note. What okay. is an interesting fact about yourself? Oh man, I wasn't expecting to talk about myself at all. <laughs> okay. Well, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I used to barrel race when I was younger. So as a teenager, uh, a lot of people don't know about women's Western sports because um, it's not fancy English sports. But you know, when you go to a rodeo, there's the men's <laughs> sports, which is like all the exciting stuff like bull riding and calf roping. Then the women's sports was barrel racing, which is barrels in like a cloverleaf pattern. You have to run around them really quickly. It's actually super intense and actually quite dangerous. Um, but I am used to barrel race. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, are you um, like a champion barrel racer? <laughs> I grew up in South Texas, uh, where kind of everyone was a, a barrel racer, but at some point I was pretty good and, <laughs> but I wasn't like a state champion or anything like that. Okay. Got it. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And in all seriousness, I am blown away by this conversation. And I am so, so happy that your team reached out asking um, to talk about this topic. I mean, it is beyond my expectations and I, I'm assuming everyone who listens to this will feel the same way. So thank you for making time. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, there's actually uh, one more thing I just wanna tell everyone sure. and that's another amazing resource. We recently put together a program that includes you know, myself talking about some of these topics, pelvic health physical therapist, um, other uh, providers talking about pain management at surgery and you can access that program at wearewomenshealth.com. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at 
fmpower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.